So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today we are very lucky to be joined by Stefan Uma, who is a professor of economic geography at the University of Beirut. Um, Stefan, where is your university? Uh, it's not in Lebanon. Some people think it's Beirut, uh, but it's actually northern Bavaria, about one hour um, away from, from Nuremberg. So today we're going we're gonna to talk about a piece that you wrote um, called Challenging the Orthodoxy, Race, Racism, and the Reconfiguration of Economics. This was a fantastic piece that I found on the Developing Economics blog, although it was, I think, originally written for the African Legal Studies blog. Yeah. And in this piece, you say, look, after the 08 crisis, there's been a ton of books which have come out saying, you know, there's a problem with economics, we need to rethink economics. But most of the books don't talk about the issues of race or racism. And you ask the question, you pose the question, you know, how would economic thinking change if race and racism were taken seriously as a, as a structural problem? And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk about some of the ways that you think we might want to, well, that we should rethink economics and take race and racism into consideration. So first, one problem with economics, you say, is that it's, and there's two problems that are, I think, are related. One is that it's ahistorical, and two, that it, it doesn't acknowledge its own origin story. So maybe you could start there. What do you mean when you say economics is ahistorical, and what is the origin story? Thanks, left for these very, very interesting uh, questions. When we say economics or mainstream economics, and, and I think mainstream economics are in a way variations of neoclassical economics, um, is ahistorical, this can mean a number of things. Uh, first, uh, this means that uh, history um, is not very well represented in uh, mainstream economic accounts, particularly colonial and imperial histories and how these um, times uh, shaped patterns of the economic landscape uh, distributions of wealth, for instance, that may have uh, repercussions until today. Uh, so this is the first uh, thing about being ahistorical. Second, it refers to your own disciplinary history and how you reflect or how you not reflect on how you have become, how you have evolved as a discipline. Uh, mainstream economics was very different in the 19th century than it is today. Uh, it was known as political economy. Uh, it was still much more open, less mathematical. Um, it bordered philosophy. Actually, there were no real disciplinary boundaries back then. But it extends uh, beyond that. It also relates to how certain key categories of the uh, economics universe, of the universe of modern economics, themselves have a colonial history. And property is a very, very interesting example here because remember one of the most uh, famous um, liberal theorists of the um, 18th century, uh, John Locke, he basically justified colonization by saying those who can make most out of the land, they should be entitled to it. And this could refer to the Isle, you know, some uh, peasants uh, in Ireland who don't make most of their lands and then deserve to be colonized. But it can also refer to the so-called new world and then justify the dispossession of um, 
First Nations and, and you know, other groups in the so-called New World. So uh, these are just um, two or three examples how we can uh, bring in the ahistoricity of, of economics. You go on to say that race and gender does not matter for most economists. And why is that? It's not just race and gender. We should extend the list. It includes caste. I mean, India is a country with one billion people. And, and uh, the case system is very relevant to India. And uh, through migration, Indian populations have moved to other places. Um, so case is really important as well. And age as well. I mean, in mainstream economics, children don't really matter, you know, and childhood is so important for what they would call preferences to be shaped, you know, by all sorts of things, by advertising by your schooling, et cetera. So, so there are more categories that I want to focus on, on race and, and gender. And I think the, the key challenge, there are a number of challenges and maybe challenge is the wrong word or a number of reasons why mainstream economics has problems with bringing in these two categories. First, if you really acknowledge them, it clashes with, the normal take on things or on people, rather on people, uh, what is called methodological individualism. So the individual is your unit of analysis and the market, the economy is basically an aggregation of individuals and, and structures and relations and institutions uh, either don't matter or they are really secondary to that. There are rejuvenations of that model like institutional economics but the core is still a kind of the individual is the unit of my analysis. And, and race and gender, they are uh, categories that, that stem from intellectual traditions where structures and relations are very important. Uh, both gender and race or racism and sexism uh, or gender-based discriminations are part of, of power systems, systems of power, highly structured systems and there's a relationality at the core of these systems. So in a way, it contradicts your own worldview once you take these categories seriously. Second, if you look at the demography of economics, uh, it's very male, it's very white, and uh, it's a very broad type of culture. It's highly competitive. It can be toxic. So it's a, it's, it's a kind of environment where you can assume that most of the people there don't want to bring in stuff that challenges their own positionality and maybe the, the, the history of their own discipline. Huh? So these are just two explanations why they find it hard to bring it in. A third one would maybe that to really grasp with these categories, you have to move beyond your own discipline. You have to become much more open in terms of your methodologies, in terms of your readings, because other disciplines, history, sociology, anthropology, cultural studies, they have made key contributions to gender analysis and, and you know, the analysis of racism. So I think these are just three reasons I, I give you here. Sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that before political economy split into all of these other disciplines and, and you had political science and then economics that maybe political economists did take other disciplines more into account. What is responsible for that, that split and those divisions? 
there are different genealogies of economics. So uh, depending on whom you read, they would provide different time frames and would single out different moments where this split took place. And a key moment uh, certainly has been the so-called marginalist revolution at the end of the 19th century, um, where Menger and Walras and others uh, came up with, you know, uh, uh, a new um, understanding of, of economic agents. So the shift to a utility-based understanding um, of economic agents and, you know, economic agents who make decisions on the margins. And this um, model of economic agents lended itself very well to mathematical modeling. So I think the uh, traditional shift that took uh, or the traditional concern of political economy, uh, how wealth is being generated, how it's being distributed, uh, what uh, uh, the proper householding of an estate or a country should look like, etc. That really shifted more to this understanding where the discipline of the market, where uh, the discipline of demand and supply and decisions uh, made on the margins are central to that. Other people would say, well, it actually happened later. And in my piece, I, I cite economic sociologist David Stark, who says the Parsian uh, or Parsons Pact, a pact that one of the most famous sociologists of the 20th century, Talcott Parsons, made with his fellow economists at Harvard, was actually the nail in the coffin for the disciplinary demarcation of economics, if you want to put it that way, because around 1945, Parsons had a kind of agreement with his colleagues that, yeah, you should do economics and you can focus on utility maximizing individuals and we do people and groups and collective behavior and systems and that is sociology. So David Stark actually says, Parsons' pact was the, the key moment in the history of economics that then led to the full uh, separation of economics. And Paul Samuelson was a very uh, crucial figure here. He wrote the first textbook in neoclassical economics, and he catered for a lot of engineers, I think, back then at, at the MIT, and, and really tried to develop a visual language and a more general language that appeals also to hard uh, natural scientists. And that explains why economics moved away, <laughs> sorry for that, uh, from the other disciplines. In your piece, you, you quote a prominent sociologist, the neoclassical market is shorn of social relations, institutions, or technology, and is devoid of elementary sociological concerns such as power, norms, and networks. That now increasingly seems obvious to me. I would imagine that it would strike others as obvious too. In your professional life, and when you talk to other economists, do they not see that? Do they see it? And they're like, yeah, that's a big problem with economics, but you know, we do what we can. What's the response to that? Um, that's a very, very good question. Um, so the responses are mostly, and this is personal experience, but also when, when you read stuff uh, on the internet or in, in, in journals, <clears throat> the response is mostly defensive. So you will often encounter these kinds of responses. 
oh, but we're actually, we have moved on, we're, we're doing this. So there's network analysis, which has entered economics, no doubt. There's institutions popping up. Some people even talk about power, you know, when it's about maybe uh, um, oligopolies in, in, in markets made by big tech and so on and so forth. So we have to acknowledge that there is work out there, even in, in, in the camp we may call mainstream economics, that somehow touches on these things. And often then colleagues point out to that kind of work and say, we are already doing this. Uh, like if you once you have the criticism, oh, uh, you're not empirically enough, you don't deal with real world problems, they may uh, point out to the latest uh, Nobel Prize laureates in economics, Esther Duflo and uh, Banerjee, um, who um, became famous with these randomized control trials and say, this is really empirical work. This is really, you know, experimental. And, and But then you look a little bit closer and you actually see that even though they employ new methods, they don't really leave the territory of methodological individualism. So the defensiveness, once you push it a little bit further, you, you see basically how things are, are crumbling a bit. I give you one example. There's a recent article in the Journal of Economic Perspectives called Race, Discrimination and Economic Perspective by uh, basically... Um, uh, Lang and uh, Khan Lang Spicer, and they end, and this is 2020, they end with a, with a very, with a very kind of sober finding here. Uh, and basically in their conclusion, they say economics, the, the idea of discrimination as a system is not easy for economists to address. So in the year 2020, uh, anything that would be couched in, in, in a language of system, of structure, or of, of relationality is really something that many, many mainstream economists still struggle with, huh? because it, it would force them to really enter a different kind of territory, intellectually, methodologically, um, and, and, and also kind of dis different disciplinary territory. They would have start have to start really, you know, sociological work, for instance. Now, this sounds like a, a kind of great intervention by economists. They seem to be self-critical, but then you look into the references, and it's really stunning how few sociologists they themselves cite. Uh, they would not mention racism a single time, but they talk about discrimination. So that is already a kind of greenwashing. And they don't mention power. And sociologists, geographers, historians, anthropologists, they all have shown that racism is a system of power that assigns uh, privileges based on certain markers of difference um, to certain types of individuals and in certain groups. Huh? Um, privileges like access to, to resources, access to opportunities, to wealth, to income, to security. Huh? even security uh, uh, against the state, you know, once you take the justice system as an example. So they don't uh, mention this. And very interestingly, they don't mention the work of black economists in the US and William Darity is one of the most famous of them who coined a field called stratification economics. And they all do this stuff, but it's not being cited 
in even this more reflective type of piece, which actually shows that mainstream economists really have a, a problem with reading uh, across. No? <laughs> Uh, they, they like to stick to themselves in a way or another. You say that it needs to be acknowledged that certain policy, that basically mainstream economic advice has done little to no good to racialized minorities in, in white majority countries. And also mainstream economic policies have not been good for people in former colonies. Mm-hmm. And partly, I think you're saying it's because mainstream economics doesn't really understand or deal with colonial political economy. What does that mean? What is the colonial political economy? Aren't we living in a post-colonial world? I mean, that is probably the one of the more contentious parts of the piece because, you know, you would, um, in, a, in a longer version, you would have to provide more evidence and, and elaborate a little bit, bit more on this. With that claim, I try to bridge both, you know, uh, a context such as the United States and uh, the global South, but especially, you know, uh, Africa. And when it comes to the United States, I, I based my intervention here on the work of John Comler, who published a really interesting paper uh, in 2019, a white um, economist uh, who, who, who said 14 reasons why African-American economists should abandon economics uh, 101 as soon as possible. And he basically outlined all the shortcomings um, of neoclassical economics, you know, the main pillar of of mainstream economics, and and how they basically affect minorities. For instance, if you don't feature history properly in your models, you may end up to explain the uh, disadvantaged position of of many African-Americans or Black Americans um, as a a function of culture, as a function of lack of human capital, education, or or any sort of other highly individualized type of uh, explanation. If you bring in history more firmly, including slavery, but also its afterlife, uh, Jim Crow, um, et cetera, et cetera, you suddenly see that, you know, ma- there, there are many things in place that structurally have disadvantaged um, uh, Black people in, in, in North America. And the question is, how much has, has policy gone to address these problems? Um, and, and you see that many of these things, and just take the prison system, uh, many of these policies have have not tried to make things better, but often made these things worse. And the the prison system is is the very best example for that. And that is why economists working in the stratification economics tradition would say to bring disadvantaged communities on a more equal footing. For instance, African Americans, the state should actually pay reparations for earlier periods of time. Uh, plus the persistent discrimination uh, that that lives through until today to bring these groups uh, at a more equal footing. And and I think, you know, these are just a few examples for the the United States context. If you go to the Global South, structural adjustment, which was highly um, inspired by mainstream economics of the 1970s and 80s, is the key example that 
in many contexts uh, made things worse uh, for populations in the global south, particularly when it comes to uh, the education systems, employment levels because of privatization, laying off of state workers, and then, of course, economists would argue that these systems were inefficient and we wanted to, to engender more efficiency. And actually, there was growth happening in the 2000s. And that is all because of the structural adjustment of the 80s and 90s. But then you look at the nature of this growth and the distribution and so on and so forth. And you may arrive at the conclusion that the mainstream advice was not the best advice no? because it, it dismantled local industries. Uh, it engendered policies which led to growth sometimes because of increased foreign direct investment, but it also led to a repatriation of capital. It led to um, you know, a highly unequal distribution of the gains of, of becoming more firmly integrated into the world economy domestically because of more liberal laws and so on and so forth. And, and taking these things together, many more critical observers would argue that, you know, neoclassical economics and the policy recipes based on it um, has not been the best advice to uh, marginalize groups. And often I have to say this, often these are not minority groups, you know, at, at a global level, these are majority groups, but in some contexts, they are minority groups. You know? uh, and of course, not all parts of these minorities have, have lost, you know? some have also gained, but uh, you need to take a larger picture. Um, Stefan, I, I wonder if you can help me here. I'm, I'm, I've been thinking a lot about the question of what post-colonial newly independent African states are trying to do you know, after, after independence, particularly with regards to, to economics. And I just read a, a wonderful novel about, a spy novel actually, about Thomas Sunkara. And he has an economic program. The economic program is, I, I guess to sum up, it, it, I think it's about independence, sovereignty, producing more of what you need for yourself, not depending so much on trade with the global north. I, I think it's something to do with import substitution industrialization. So a couple mm -hmm. questions. One is, I wonder if sort of writ large, the newly independent states in sub-Saharan Africa are, are trying that economic program that I just described. And two, how we get to and why we get to the end of ISI and, and how we get to globalization and neoliberalism and structural adjustments? What's the, the historical process? Hmm. Um, that's a, a really broad question. I think I also sorry, sorry. Um, <laughs> cut the, the part on what is still colonial about the global economy. And I think it interrelates um, with, with that question to some extent because the legacies of colonialism are not just that you have post-colonial states, former colonies, and their education systems have been shaped by that, or uh, the, the distribution of land has been shaped by that, like Zimbabwe or South Africa or, or Kenya as settler colonies. It, it really moves beyond that. You know, it also relates to, in general, who makes decisions in the global economy, 
who explains the global economy, who says what a good economy is, um, who's in the in on, on the steering wheel, you know. So so if you look at at who, the actual demography behind these questions, it's it's highly skewed, you know, towards the global north, and uh, especially also often towards. Um, uh, people in, in 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 privileged positions and and, and white um, decision makers, not exclusively, of course, but um, there is this pattern. So that is what is meant with a colonial global economy to really get a, a better understanding of of these legacies that move beyond the political and material. Now, when you go to to Africa. Um, Africa is a really complex landscape uh, uh, at the dawn of independence. And, and this is basically a period starting with Sudan in 56, uh, then Ghana followed. And then, you know, it, it stretches on uh, to, to Namibia uh, to 1990, which, which was governed uh, by or occupied by South Africa. And in, in 94, South Africa apartheid was dismantled and uh, majority rule took over. So you could say this is the end of, of a kind of formal colonialism, 1994, but much has, has survived from that era. But if we jump back to the 50s and, and 60s, where most of the countries became independent, they, they shared certain similarities. So there was a strong Pan-Africanist spirit at the beginning. Kwame Nkrumah, the first president of Ghana, uh, Leopold Senghor of Senegal, uh, Kenneth Kaunda, who just died this year, so he, he became pretty old, of Zambia, Julius Nerere of Tanzania. They really were Pan-Africanists, and, and many of them understood that they... Uh, actually need to work together to, to counter the forces of colonialism and neocolonialism. And they did so quite successfully in some domains, but it was also a highly conflictual uh, project with, with you know, many different interests. In, in terms of economic policies, they often uh, deployed a model of uh, state uh, interventionism, so uh, an economy that is heavily backed up by the state um, and some uh, adopted a more socialist path. Um, others like uh, Angola and uh, Mozambique, more Marxist-Leninist path. Others like Kenya, despite, you know, also centering the state, uh, were, were much more liberal um, and, and much more capitalist than, than some of their compatriots but uh, or contemporaries, but also very state-centered. So I think this is a is a commonality uh, that also often involves in one party rule. Right? One party, often the party of the independent struggle, who would then steer these uh, countries into the future. And uh, that shaped a lot in terms of what was going on. And, and often it, it was a kind of industrialization model that was embraced that uh, try to substitute uh, imports, you know, and build up infant industries and, and uh, use a lot of state employment to employ people uh, and so on and so forth. And this model increasingly slid um, into crisis into the 19, in the 1970s 
in 80s for a variety of reasons. I know Tanzania quite well because I've been doing research there. And Tanzania, various sectors contributed to that crisis. We had the oil price crisis, uh, which hit resource-dependent economies on the one hand. Um, uh, I mean, you know, resource-dependent in the sense of uh, you import uh, fuels, and and uh, fuels are needed for a variety of things, including fertilizer production. So things become more expensive. So a country like Tanzania was really hit by that. But they also had a war with Uganda. State socialism produced a very bloated type of uh, state apparatus. They had uh, problems with uh, collectivization um, because it didn't, uh, you know, catch the spirit of the people over a longer uh, term. Um, and they had problems with lenders and, and uh, economic pressure from lenders as well who had an interest that, you know, Tanzania does not shift more towards the Soviet Union, but actually more towards the West. And uh, this led to a, a situation of huge indebtedness uh, towards the end of the 80s and early, uh, end of 70s and early 80s. And finally, to the first structural adjustment program, uh, and later on also to um, uh, a change in, in leadership and in the early 90s to, to the opening up in multi-party democracy. And I think this is a pattern you see in, in many of, of the African countries. Um, and, and what is left over then is often uh, economic sectors that uh, face much more global competition, uh, public sectors which have been downsized, education systems which have been partly privatized or at least uh, um, economized in a way that they become more market-oriented, deregulation of financial markets, deregulation of commodity markets, capital controls, etc. Uh, so, so that is then the era of globalization. You know, foreign investment comes in, mining, gold, but also platinum and, and other sectors, oil, gas, these are sectors that, that have really attracted a lot of foreign direct investment since the 1990s, uh, but especially the early 2000s because of a commodity boom across many African countries. Huh? And that is then a part of the reason why we suddenly talked about Africa rising um, in the mid-2000s and, and towards the end of the 2000s, because a lot of African countries in aggregate terms showed very impressive growth rates. Angola, uh, Ethiopia, um, Tanzania, just to name a few. But once you disaggregate them, the question comes to mind, who gets what? Uh, who has fared how? How have the gains been distributed? What has been the ecological impact of that growth? Uh, mining is, is a good example here. And, and eventually, um, it, it raises questions about the coloniality of certain types of growth patterns, because once you take that angle, the eventual question is, do we see patterns that break with the past, or do we see patterns that um, are an extension of the past, yeah? extension of the past in terms of external dependencies, majority of the people not benefiting, um, decision-making in the hands of the few privileged ones, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I hope I could <laughs> address um, 
this you, very, very broad you, you question. did. No, that was great. Thank you. I know the question was, was huge, but um, thank you for making it really specific. There's a blog that I use a lot for my classes, which I'm sure you know about, um, Our World and Data. Yep. And the data that they present seems to be making the case over and over again that you no, know, things are actually getting much better for, for everybody in the world and particularly in the global South. I have a good friend who has no skin in the game. Like, you know, he's not an economist. He doesn't work for our world and data. And, you know, every time I, I start to criticize the global economic order, you know, he redirects me via WhatsApp text to our world and data. So let me ask for some help. You know, how might you respond people who, well, I have two questions. One, how might you respond to people who defend the, I guess, the world order as it is? And the second question is, why do you think, and because I have a bunch of friends in my life like this, why do you think that so many people feel like they need to defend the status quo? Yeah, uh, things left really, really good questions. I mean, <clears throat> the blog you mentioned, it's, it's awesome work. It's a big team very impactful, awesome in the sense that uh, it, you know, I respect the the labor they they undertake. But you 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 really have to be critical about any kind of data based work, um, because you always have to look at the details and and the rationals and the motives behind. And one of the lessons, if you read beyond economics or mainstream economics, is there's no innocent scholarship. All work is political. Uh, you can claim to be objective, but you always have a kind of um, a bias in your work for a variety of reasons, uh, because you were socialized in a certain way, uh, because you, you've received an economics training that only has exposed you to, to one school of thought or maybe only two. Uh, and, and there are so many other ways you can be biased, huh? but, but many don't acknowledge this. And I think if you look to at our world in data, this is also the case. I mean, uh, Max Rosa, who started this, and, and maybe t people in this team, they already approach the world with a certain view, and then they they build their data-based analysis of uh, on that and, and arrive at certain conclusions. Um, so I, I don't want to comment specifically on any of their outputs, but the questions I would have as a teacher or a student when I see these types of statistics, okay, uh, let's say they say over the past 200 years, um, well-being has risen uh, in, in all parts of the world. And this was mainly due to uh, capitalism, you know, to market-based or market-oriented type of policies, because this is the system in which all this was embedded. I would ask, okay, how do you define well-being? Uh, how do you get uh, or arrive at the kind of data that um, signals well-being in 1850? Uh, how, how do you measure well-being in 1850? And how do you maybe also account for resources that people had at their disposal, but that were taken away uh, via colonialism. Huh? Does this factor into uh, your, your, your measurement of well-being huh? or not? What kinds of policies were really responsible for uh, the rise um, of well-being in certain countries in the world? China would be a good example. 
some people say China is not capitalist, so uh, it's clear that capitalism has not been responsible for this rise. And then other people say, oh, China is exactly capitalist. This has nothing to do with, uh, with uh, socialism. And, and there's a pinch of truth in, in, in both of them. But what, I, what, what is definitely the case is the policies of China have nothing to do with the policy recommendations that most of the countries of the global south have been implementing as part of global adjustment. They walked a different track as South Korea, Taiwan, and a few of the other countries that, that are often being paraded you know, as, as these uh, successful late industrializers. They, they have really walked a different path, much different from, from structural adjustment. So I think I would, would always caution people to to look closely and not be enticed by a, a fancy type of graph. And I would expect people like Bill Gates, very smart people to, to have these kinds of questions, but unfortunately it doesn't happen. You know, someone like Bill Gates would just take uh, a graph or figure from our world and data and say, oh, this is the proof that the system has worked for us. Uh, um, so I think this is um, what, what I would respond um, to, to, to someone I would have a conversation with about this block. And the second thing, why is it so difficult to, to take another view? I mean, again, I think it's a mixture. I think, and this is an insight of stratification economics. Uh, stratification economics posits that uh, we have, uh, you know, inequality and inequalities made near product because uh, groups want to occupy a good position in a social hierarchy and identity is a very, very powerful tool for creating group cohesion and you do uh, not anything you can, but you employ a variety of strategies to maintain your group position and to exclude others uh, from those benefits. And I think part of the defensiveness stems from this often kind of subconscious uh, feeling that it threatens your own positionality. Once you, 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 you hand over or give away some of that control uh, or, or you have to adopt another worldview and then acknowledge that this has been indeed a genocide, you know, like slavery, transatlantic slavery. Why, why don't we approach it also in terms of genocidal rhetoric? And then immediately the question of reparation comes up and the question of who pays for it and who is responsible. And, and suddenly it really relates, you know, to, to, um, to the white majority um, or at least the offsprings of, of, of those people who, who um, benefited from, from slavery and, and it threatens your own positionality. But positionality is not just social, <clears throat> it's also professional. And it's really hard for economists, I would say, because it's such a hermetic system, uh, very competitive, um, very closed, very male. It, it's really hard and also dangerous to take another view. Yeah? Uh, it, it, can, it can break careers. Uh, you will not be published in certain journals if you 
are perceived to be too critical or uh, if you don't um, match the latest trends in, in econometrics or something like that. So I think it's also a part of the disciplinary socialization or the problem uh, has to be located in, in the disciplinary socialization. Why certain people don't want to change their views and read other things and engage with other perspectives. So I think these are just two reasons. I guess there are more. I think also the belief you you do evidence-based stuff, you, you have the data and you can prove it is part of, of the problem. But once you change your parameters a little bit and your theories a little bit, the data may tell something very different. You know, I give you an example. <clears throat> Once you disaggregate growth figures and would have figures, and this is really hard to get for many African countries, about the distribution of that growth uh, in terms of income uh, and wealth. And wealth is a particularly important category uh, as stratification economists have repeatedly argued and the mechanisms that transfer wealth between generations, you know, like inheritance or gift giving or marriage. So once you center wealth and its distribution, you, you may suddenly arrive at a very different uh, story and, and your growth success story may appear in, 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 in a very different light. And to, to jump back to the U.S. context where we have prison corporations who are stock market listed your growth story could be, I mean, this is hypothetical, but your growth story could be based on uh, the growth of uh, private and stock uh, market listed prisons yeah, and their expansion. Question is, is it good <laughs> to have more and more people in, in stock market listed uh, prisons? If you just remain with GDP, you're not interested in that. If you disaggregate, you arrive at very different uh, at a very different angle to, to, uh, to the so-called success story, right? So I think these are just a few of the reasons.